You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Your Honor, I present as evidence in this case the defendant's blood type, his DNA workup, a CAT scan, a PET scan, plus scans from EEG, MRI, FMRI, QMRI. Okay, that's a lot of acronyms. Plus this gun with a smoke trailing from it. We'll decode them in a moment, but welcome to the courtroom of the future where a suite of high-tech scientific tools are used to solve crimes. I remember when the most sophisticated tool didn't even require batteries. Watson, I must examine this footprint. Please hand me the six-inch magnifying glass with triple magnification. That's bloody high-tech, Holmes. You'll undoubtedly make out the vague impression of his boots now. Elephants, my dear Watson. His feet are the size of elephants. But then tools became more sophisticated. Today, entering DNA as evidence in court is routine, but 20 years ago it seemed futuristic, exotic, and a little unsettling. Today, terms such as DNA, gene, chromosome, even genome, are part of the legal vernacular. And the courtroom glossary is expanding to include frontal cortex, MRI, and QMRI. Find out how neuroscience is having its day in court. Also, today's DNA testing... Just isn't your daddy's forensic analysis. One drop of blood can reveal a suspect's eye color. Also, a man who solves crimes of the future. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Who done it? Who will do it? We all have brains. Can we establish that? But from your point of view, what my brain is thinking or what its intentions are at any given moment, well, that's hard to say. You could ask me. And that might help. But we could also fire up one of a number of sophisticated pieces of machinery that can take a look at Seth's brain. Seth's brain. Sounds like a science fiction movie. Or a comic book. Remember those acronyms EEG. Electroencephalogram. MRI. Magnetic resonance imaging. FMRI. Functional magnetic resonance imaging. QMRI. Quantitative resonance imaging. ZMRI. I don't know that one. Yeah, I was kidding you with that one. These neuroscience tools are giving scientists an unprecedented look at the structure and the activity of the human brain. And now those results are going to court. Neuroscience and law, two areas of study that use evidence, data, and fallible human interpretation— are coming together in an effort to understand what human beings are really up to. Owen Jones is professor of law and professor of biological sciences at Vanderbilt University. He says that brain scans are increasingly used to help determine the verdict of guilt or innocence, but also in the sentencing part of a trial. In this sort of context, someone has already been found guilty, and the question is, okay, how can we get the lightest sentence possible for the defendant. And in those circumstances, a zealous lawyer 
we'll pull out all stops. We'll bring in the kinds of evidence that we can. Some of that may be brain imaging evidence, and perhaps there's something unusual about this person's brain. A concrete example of this came up in the Grady Nelson case in Florida. Now, this was a man who was convicted of stabbing someone or or, or killing his wife, was it? Uh, Precisely. Uh, I think it was his ex-wife, but the stabbing was quite vigorous, went on for 67 thrusts. And when the defendant here, Grady Nelson, was convicted of that homicide, the attorney attempted to bring in evidence that's so-called QEEG, that's quantitative electroencephalography. And what that technique involves is basically putting a lot of sensitive electrodes all over the scalp and monitoring the electrical activity of neurons and seeing whether or not these can be combined into an image that jurors can understand. And in this particular case, the expert witness for the defense brought in images and made the claim that some of these images showed a really sharp deviation from from normal. And what was interesting in particular about this case is that when the jurors were trying to decide whether or not the defendant should get the death penalty or instead should be given life in prison without parole, two jurors came out afterwards after a very, very close vote that resulted in life in prison and said, we were persuaded by this brain scanning evidence. That's what made the difference for us. But certainly they weren't able to, the jurors weren't able to interpret this highly technical evidence. I mean, I've seen brain scans and and there's sort of this graph, a little bit like the seismographs that we have here in, in California registering the movement of the earth. I mean, how could they understand what those graphs mean and, and, and what is it that the science is actually saying about, about this man, Grady Nelson's brain? Right. So that's where the Q part comes in, in QEEG. The quantitative technique is designed to take this data and transform it into a picture, and a picture that would be more accessible to the audience jurors. And a researcher then, using this software, has the opportunity to colorize those pictures to give a sense of the corresponding unusualness, so to speak, of the different brain activity. I wonder if you could say more about what this unusualness could be, and it doesn't need to be with Grady Nelson, but with anyone, and what brings it about. Are we talking about trauma to the brain, genetic differences, or what is it that creates, say, a criminal brain? And I'm using that very generally. So that's that's very interesting. There, there are really two different questions. One is, what kinds of impingement or deviation in brain activity are the defendants trying to bring forth as an explanation in some respect for their bad behavior. The other question is whether or not that deviation actually caused the legally prohibited behavior. As an example of the first question, you might, for example, show a structural scan that reveals a very large cancerous mass that is impinging upon a part of the brain that we separately know to be involved in inhibition, for example. Another example is one in which, whether or not there is any structural abnormality, there may be some functioning of the brain that is a real outlier compared to the rest of the population. Getting to the the second embedded question, which is what might this mean about the causes of criminal behavior, that is, of course, an inference that the defendants are often asking jurors to draw and to say, 
well, this behavior was bizarre, and here's a bizarre feature in my brain, and perhaps the bizarre feature caused this behavior. These arguments tend to have some appeal, and yet there's a weakness inherent in them, and that is that typically you have no concrete way of connecting a brain feature to a past act. So, for example, if I've been on in jail for six months awaiting trial, and during that period I get a brain scan and it shows some abnormality, we don't know that that abnormality was present at the time of the bad act, which could have been a long time ago. And we also don't know that even if it was present, it actually had some causal influence on the bad behavior. Well, oh, and that sounds then that these images can be very confusing and they're open to a lot of interpretation. So I wonder if you could give me a concrete example where they're actually useful. So one of the ways in which neuroimaging evidence can potentially be useful is to buttress existing evidence of other sorts. So, for example, if you're dealing with somebody who has very bizarre behavior, ordinarily the best evidence that this person may, for example, be insane is the fact that they're acting insane, regardless of what is going on in their brain. But if in addition to that behavior, you also see something very abnormal in either the structure of the brain or the functioning of the brain, that may bolster your confidence in concluding what you may already have had sufficient evidence to conclude if you wished, which is perhaps this person is really insane. But aside from, from those sorts of contexts, it's important to remember that brain scanning is not mind reading of the sort that we might tend to think about in, in science fiction. We can't put somebody in a scanner and say, aha, you really were at the 7-Eleven at 10.37 p.m. two nights ago. There's a lot more to thoughts and to the content of thoughts than just blood calling up oxygen, which is, after all, what some of these techniques like fMRI is all about. But if all behavior does come from the brain, and you just outlined some of what the brain was going on in the brain, the circulation of blood and oxygen and so forth, and neurons that are firing, then when can someone excuse themselves from their own accountability by just saying, my brain made me do it? This is this was something outside of my control. And the same defense has been used with DNA and, and also maybe more humorously but with sad consequences, the, the Twinkie defense, which was used in San Francisco many years ago. Right. There is a common line of argument in some criminal defense cases that if you can find a cause that is not the person, him or herself, that somehow that should be an excusing circumstance. A lot of these arguments, as with the Twinkie defense, as with genetic defenses, as with brain imaging defenses, are likely to be appealing to jurors and, and probably on merits only in the very most extreme cases when someone is operating at such a deficit compared to the rest of the population that it would really be a shocking thing indeed to hold them completely accountable. So where a lot of these techniques are likely to have their greatest traction is really going to be in the criminal context on the, the sentencing side. Now, in the discussion we've had so far has been focused on criminal activity and criminal trials, but neuroscience evidence and the evidence of neuroscience can be used in other cases as well. And I wonder if you could just give an overview of some other areas of law where it's being applied and maybe one example that's particularly promising or interesting in your point of view. Well, 
while a lot of people think of brain imaging as applying just to the question of guilt or innocence or or sentencing amount, there are a number of other potential applications that are pretty exciting. One, of course, and perhaps most obviously, is brain injury cases, that you can use these techniques to learn about brain injuries that may only be detectable in functional scans, even if they're not detectable in structural scans. When you are making the claim that your brain has been adversely affected by by some event, these techniques uh, may be very useful in those sorts of circumstances. Another very promising possibility, certainly one that would transform potentially some aspects of the legal system, would be if brain scanning techniques could be used to determine the presence of and the severity of pain. So a lot of court cases, for example, turn on how much someone should be compensated for the injuries that, that they're experiencing in, in the way of daily pain. And, um, and, so, and so you can measure how much pain the person is under by, by looking at their brain? Well, there, there is some recent research that suggests that these techniques can be promising in this context. There were techniques that involved the application of heat to someone's arm while their brain was being scanned, and then essentially training up a computer algorithm to start to recognize patterns in how different people experience that kind of thermal pain. Is there a danger here in us reducing the human experience to a series of numbers, algorithms, and and databases that we no longer describe the human experience in terms of words or poetry or literature, but it's all going to come down to the numbers? That's right. Well, you know, it's an interesting perspective on the the phenomenon. If you're a so-called materialist, you believe that everything that happens in your brain all the way down is a function of chemistry and and physics and consequent biology. Obviously, if you're not, you may believe that there's an instantiated soul or there's something going on in your body beyond what your neural activity is providing. And some people have, have found the materialist view very threatening, that somehow the fact that the choices we make are a function of the prior state of the universe and our environment suggests that therefore we have no free will whatsoever. I'm not quite so pessimistic about that. I I think human experience suggests to us that we have some control over some of our choices and that it operates on a continuum. We have less control over over other such things. But in many ways, I feel that the, the richness of human experience is not diminished by the science, but if anything is enhanced, that we we learn more about how astonishingly complex it is, that behavior happens and that choices can be made and that people can find meaning in those choices. Owen Jones, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Molly. I appreciate it. Owen Jones is a professor of law and of biological sciences at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, Fascinating, Molly, how this new technology is changing arguments made in the courtroom. It really is incredible. I know. It makes me wonder what might have happened if this technology had been available in Dayton, Tennessee, 85 years ago. Oh, honey, come listen to the radio. The attorney Clarence Darrow is waving around some brain scans trying to defend that poor school teacher. Well, ain't that the cat's meow. Your Honor, this functional magnetic resonance image demonstrates quite clearly that John Scopes engaged his prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain responsible for logical, logical thought, when he instructed the schoolchildren in evolution. Impressive, Mr. Darrow, continued teaching Mr. Scopes. 
Case dismissed. What? We didn't come from monkeys? I feel it in my limbic system. Case dismissed, Mr. Brian. Coming up, could advanced DNA analysis allow us to sketch criminals based only on a hair retrieved at the scene of the crime? Also, a man who profiles future criminals. It's who done it, who will do it. On Big Picture Science. Welcome back to Big Picture Science. DNA evidence has been in the courtroom for more than two decades. It can establish a person's identity with an accuracy above 99%. But our understanding of those spiraling double helices has certainly gotten more sophisticated over the years. But Seth, what more is there to understand? DNA is already so accurate, so what can it do now? Well, in the old days, all it was used for was to identify a suspect. I mean, you would find a little bit of DNA at a crime scene, and then you would compare that to the DNA of the suspect, and you could say, it's the same person, or it's not the same person. It was just a one-bit result. It identified the suspect with the evidence. But things are changing, and that very simple use of DNA is becoming quite a bit more sophisticated. This is thanks to a team of researchers at Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam. Now, led by a forensic molecular biologist, Manfred Kaiser, this team has developed some techniques that can actually give them true clues to a person's physical traits. For example, eye or hair color or height. All from a drop of blood. Manfred, the quintessential tool for catching a thief or most any other criminal is a physical description. But could we come up with these descriptions without anyone having actually witnessed the crime? Well, that's, of course, the idea and the, the dream of, of many policemen. Uh, unfortunately, human biology does not allow that yet, but we and other people are working on this. In other words, we are trying to find the parts in our genome that are responsible for how we look, and from that information, we are trying to develop tests that can be applied in forensic laboratories in the future uh, to get appearance information out of a crime scene sample. Well, clearly, our genes say a lot about our physical appearances. I mean, anyone who's looked at identical twins, identical twins even that have, have been separated at birth and were raised in different environments, notices that they look pretty much the same all their lives. So clearly, genetics is, uh, is it not the major determinant of what we're going to look like? Well, when it comes to the face, you're completely right. The interesting thing is also we know as you describe from the twins example that the face is mostly determined by genes. We have so far no idea yet where that information is in our genome. In other words, which genes are responsible for our facial appearance. But of course, there are other parameters of how we look than the facial shape. So think about eye color, hair color, well, let's take that as an easy example, eye color. Can we tease that out of the DNA? Do we know enough to look at, a, say, a DNA sequence from someone and say, now, these are the sequences, this is the part of the sequence that determines eye color, and I can read that, and I know that this person would have blue eyes or, or brown eyes or something? Yes, yeah, so indeed, because of our work over the last 
say, three or four years and that of some others, we, we can say that. And we can especially say that nowadays for blue and brown eye color. And we can actually predict with a quite high uh, reliability from DNA sample as such as those found at crime scene if the person has blue or brown eyes. We can do that quite reliable already, indeed. Are there other characteristics, maybe hair color, height, race, that you can determine with reliability? So for hair color, it also works quite reliably already, at least for some hair colors, for instance, for the dark hair colors like brown or black and for red hair. There are some problems still with some of the blonde people, especially those that wear blonde as children, but as adults uh, are not blonde anymore, so they can be then uh, usually brown. And there, the DNA test has still some problems, as you may imagine, and we have no clue yet what is the biological control for this uh, age-dependent color change, which mostly happens to the blondes. For the red hair color, it works quite reliable, and even for blonde, it works fairly reliable, especially when you think that the final application like in a forensic case, would be to crime scene samples where the police has no clue whatsoever who is the donor, and therefore even information that is true to like 80% likelihood may be very useful. Other traits, so height would be a very obvious trait. I mean, we know that height is about 80% heritable. So in other words, 80% of your height you really get because of your genes. And then the remaining 20% you get because of environmental impact, like nutrition and other things. But the problem is that height as a trait is genetically so complex, just to give you the current knowledge example, so 180 positions in the genome have been identified with involvement in height, at least so strong that one can be sure it's true. But those 180 positions in the genome, they only explain 10% of the 80% high heritability. So in other words, we still miss a lot when it comes to genes being involved in height. Clearly, we're learning more about this. I, I assume that as time goes on, we'll be able to better predict somebody's appearance on the basis of just some DNA that was lifted from a crime scene. Will we, in the near future, be able to actually make the equivalent of a mugshot, you know, a drawing, the kind of things that police artists do that show someone who committed a crime. I mean, is that feasible ever? It's very hard to say. Of course, we hope it is, and we are working on this. And actually, while we're speaking, we are working on this because we are actually trying to understand the genetics of the human face. So nobody has yet any idea which genes there are, how many genes there are. We only know that the majority of the face shape is strongly influenced by genes. So it will really be the next few years that will allow us to get an idea how difficult it will become in the future to produce such a phantom picture simply from DNA. Uh, My gut feeling is that it may not be that simple, but it may also not be impossible. Finally then, Manfred, have these techniques been used with any success so far? I mean, does Interpol take an interest in your work and have they been using it? Well, there are some legal hurdles in some countries, actually, uh, because in many countries, the use of DNA for forensics is restricted to those parts of the genome that don't contain any other information than simple numbers that allow you to identify someone on a kind of genetic number code. But the use of DNA information that codes for things like appearance is in some countries 
not allowed. Um, so that is a hurdle that has to be overcome. In the Netherlands, for instance, this legal hurdle has been overcome already. So the Dutch are quite pragmatic people and they adapted their law so that it is able to take advantage of these new scientific developments. And there we indeed do hope that the tests uh, we are developing will be applied to casework very soon. But you should keep in mind that this is all very recent stuff. So only over the last one or two years, we have developed those type of tests. So it's all pretty fresh. Manfred Kaiser, thank you so much for talking with me. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Manfred Kaiser is a forensic molecular biologist at Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. You know, Seth, Manfred's discussion about how DNA is being used now illustrates the sophistication with which DNA is being employed these days. But, you know, DNA in general has been in trials for a long time, believe it or not. Yes. And when it was first introduced, well, it was new technology, new terminology. People had to get used to it. So it wasn't always effective as a forensic tool. And let the trial continue of is thy or is thy not a witch, because thou'st behavior is strange and freaketh us out. Mr. Hawthorne? I now present thy court with the DNA results of Miss Bridget Bishop. Prithee, churchgoers, to peruse the results. Whence this genetic evidence? Whither the DNA? Silence, churchgoers. With regard to Miss Bishop's suspected wielding of demonic forces, her DNA shows nary a trace of satanic sequences of jackal genes. Which genes? He said, which genes? There was no double helix of heathen. Which genes are those? Again, he utters which genes, which, which genes? Which genes? No, no, Privy, I am telling you which genes she has. Which genes? She has which genes? Which? Which? Which genes, not which genes? Which genes? Which? Oh, no, no, I beseech thee. Which genes? Which? which? Order, order, Privy. Which? which? Well, all new technology takes some getting used to. So do 400-year-old accents. And that, in a nutshell, is the core of Mark Goodman's work. His business card reads, Founder, Future Crimes Institute, anticipating tomorrow's crimes today. Mark, you founded something called the Future Crimes Institute. And that suggests to me that uh, in the future, crimes are going to be different. Uh, In what sense will they be different than the crimes of today? Well, I think that they all have much in common with the crimes of today, as a matter of fact. So there will still be murder, there will still be robbery, for example. But I think the means and methods that people use to commit these crimes will look very, very different from the way they do today. Well, can you describe for me the kind of crime you see coming down the pike in, say, 10 years that maybe we're completely unprepared for now? Sure. Um, One of the areas that I think uh, that will occur with is robotic crime, for example. While there's been a lot of emphasis on cybercrime of today, the cybercrime of today is mostly a two-dimensional problem. By that I mean it's criminality involving computers and technology, but that is mostly behind computer screens. So people are able to get into your data, they're able to steal your digital funds, but it's stuff that only affects sort of a two-dimensional space behind a computer screen. In the future, as we connect more and more things to the Internet, the harm that can be done through computer hacking or unauthorized access to a computer system will take on a three-dimensional component. So, for example, a service robot that could be reprogrammed to do something that it was not intended to do or that would cause harm to another person. So when you say a service robot, are you talking about the kinds of robots that we might have in the home, or are you talking about something that builds my car? 
Um, it could be any and all of the above. So whether it's the big robot that builds your car in a factory floor or much smaller robots that are going to become increasingly uh, more commonplace in society. So this already happened in Japan. So, for example, in Japan, they're using robots to help the elderly in retirement homes and provide them companionship. And we know within the military sphere there are probably close to 15,000 different robotics, whether flying robots or ground-based systems that do a variety of different things. Some of these robots, in fact, are armed and carry weapons. And those types of robotics are increasingly moving into civilian law enforcement. So police agencies during SWAT and hostage situations are sending out robots with guns. And when you have a robot with a gun that's connected to the Internet built around an insecure operating system, bad things can happen if somebody else gets access to that robot. Would they do that uh, just to you know, save themselves the price of hiring some mafioso from uh, Chicago to knock somebody off? Or are they just doing it, do you think, I mean, do you foresee this as being done simply for the fun of it, the way people write computer viruses today? Well, a criminal could do any number of different things. Uh, the military is developing a large number of robotic exoskeletal systems. So those will probably become widely available in the public, and people will have much greater strength as a result of these systems. This is something you strap on your body? It turns you into a, a kind of a Superman with, with servo motors or something? That's exactly right. So they're being used in the military to allow soldiers to carry two, three, four, five hundred pounds of equipment on their back to be able to walk at much greater distances, to be able to lift things that a normal human using human strength could not. And so hacking these things might be something that uh, a foreign country might do. Right. Well, in, ter in, in terms of the exoskeletons, I don't even know that they would have to be hacked, just they would become available in the civilian world. And once they do, I anticipate that people will use them to sort of uh, act as a surrogate for their own strength, to extend their own strength, the same way you could commit a robbery uh, using your fist, or you can do it with a baseball bat or a gun. I just see these types of technologies as being yet another extension. But once you have superhuman strength, then you could commit anything from assaults to break-ins, uh, as an example. This sounds like the kind of scenario I frequently see now at my local multiplex uh, if I go to a comic book-inspired film. Yes. People think that's the case. One of my favorite quotes is by William Gibson in his novel Neuromancer, where he says that the future is already here. It's just not widely distributed. So all of the crimes that we're going to be talking about today are already in process or instances where I've seen cases of these things happening. There's something on your website that suggests that there might even be an incentive to hack airport x-ray machines. What's the deal? Sure. Well, I mean, that's one of the interesting observations that uh, several people have made and, and I've noticed myself is that when you look at something that looks like a complicated machine, such as an airport x-ray machine, in fact, behind the, the big screen, uh, you basically have an old Windows computer running these devices, whether it's a 486 or old Pentium machine running an old operating system. 
So a lot of the hardware of these airport x-ray machines are just nothing more than Pentium computers running a standard version of Windows. And in more and more, these devices are networked so that there's some sort of systemic control over them so that it can work from a central monitoring point. When that's the case, when you have a airport x-ray machine that is connected wirelessly to the Internet, it means that whether or not there's a firewall on it, in effect, it is still talking to the rest of the Internet one way or another. And if that's the case, that means using some sort of computer malware, I can take over that machine, gain root access, and put whatever digital image I want on the operator's screen. So I can put through a knapsack with several guns or bombs or something like that and just show you know, two books and a laptop going through the computer. My goodness. Okay, so so this could have very serious consequences. This is just not a matter of, you know, uh, examining the X-ray photos of uh, you know the various people going through. Right. I mean, one of the things I often ask people is why do they believe what they see on computer screens? It's the new religion that I call "in screen we trust." Just because it's on your computer screen, whether that computer screen is an iPhone or a television screen, people seem to believe the information that they're fed, and yet all of that information is entirely malleable. You can craft whatever message you want, and that seems to have been what happened in the case of the Stuxnet um, computer attack that you may have heard of. Elaborate a little bit in a couple of sentences on Stuxnet. So. The Stuxnet uh, computer worm or virus was something that uh, reportedly had affected the Iranian nuclear power plants uh, in a fashion such that it caused them a significant amount of harm. And one of the components of that attack was that when the Iranian nuclear engineers were looking at their industrial safety systems, they all read green. In other words, everything was fine and in working order. And in fact, what was going on is the centrifuges were spinning out of control. This is based upon a number of media reports and, and studies uh, on the topic. So on the screens of the industrial engineers, they're seeing everything's fine because a video and false information was being fed over that screen to them when in fact there were some very serious problems. So all of these screens can be hacked and any image can be displayed. I mean, in the old days, people used to do this with fax machines. The first time many of us got a fax machine, you could put in any number or name for your caller ID and there was nothing to prevent a, a fax to appear to be coming from the White House or NBC News. And now there are just more modern ways of doing just that. In terms of combating this kind of crime, it, uh, it occurs to me that the people who are charged with doing that are always fighting the last war, that the connivers are always ahead of those trying to forestall the crime. Is that true? And, and, and is that where you come in? Um, that would be my observation. Um, long ago, uh, when I was a police officer, uh, I noticed that uh, young teenagers, 14, 15, 16-year-olds in, in the inner city were carrying pagers or beepers at a time when the only people that had pagers and beepers were physicians. And while these young gang members were definitely involved in the pharmaceutical trades, uh, they were dealing in illicit pharmaceuticals. They were gang members using pagers as a means of communications and signaling. So bad guys have always been very, very quick to adapt to technology. And due to constraints on the government law enforcement side, they've often been a lot slower. Well, finally, then, tell me how you're going to help, Mark. I mean, what is it that you can bring to the table that will have a significant impact on forestalling so much of this uh, rather uh, unpleasant scenario you paint. 
Well, I think there are two things. Uh, the first is a public education role that I play, one in educating the general public, but then also my colleagues in law enforcement. So they are so busy, the law enforcement community, with the crimes of today, it's very difficult to anticipate the crimes of tomorrow. But I think once the crime wave has hit or has struck, then it's too late. So what I'm trying to do is expand the thinking of my colleagues and to get them to consider some of the potential criminal implications of robotics, artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, uh, and the like. Beyond that, I'm also working with those that are creating these technologies. So working closely with people that are doing human genomics and synthetic biology and robotics and trying to have them build safety mechanisms into their systems such that they are secure in the first place and, two, that they have some sort of Asimov's uh, law of robotics that protect robots from doing harm, as one example. Mark Goodman, thanks so much for uh, being with us today. Thank you. The pleasure was mine. The Future Crimes Institute has one founder. It's Mark Goodman. You know, it's interesting, Seth, to imagine the crimes of the future. Yes, and who knows? One day we might have the means to truly foresee future crimes. Mr. Shostak, you have been brought before this court to be charged with the crime of acquiring illegal quantities of antimatter. But I don't have any antimatter. You will. You are being charged with intent. Intent? I don't even want antimatter. Isn't that the stuff that annihilates all ordinary matter? And using this rare substance for nothing more than to clean up your garage. No! Uh, Can it really do that? Uh, Your Honor, I have not committed the crime you've charged me with. We've run a simulation of your neural circuitry, and it's clear that 62 weeks from now, on a Tuesday, you'll break into Bob's antimatter supply house and feed barn, steal a magnetic flux bottle of antimatter, and apply it to those transmission fluid stains on your garage floor to, as you will put it, clean them up once and for all. Those stains have been bugging me for years, but I'm innocent, Your Honor. Or I will be. No one is innocent, Mr. Shostak. Please return Monday for sentencing. And no, you can't get reimbursed the cost of parking outside the courthouse. I didn't say anything. Your retinal scan, Mr. Shostak. We have your retinal scan. Coming up for all the advancements in forensic science. Why, one law professor says it's just about as precise as medieval sorcery. Who done it? Who'll do it? Big picture science. Forensic science is a big umbrella that comprises the application of a wide range of science in order to answer questions posed by the law. And while some of the tools used are quite reliable, DNA testing, for example... A whole suite of other tests are dubious. Now, thanks to television shows such as CSI, forensic science has developed mythic status as a foolproof and often quick method of solving crimes. But according to law professor David Fagman, many techniques that are used to analyze crime scenes... Well, your average 18th century medic would have felt quite at home using them. Now, I I know that you're not a detective, but if you were to walk into a room and a crime had been committed, what are the sorts of evidence gathered for forensic science? Where does the eye go and what sorts of things are paid attention to? As you say, I'm not really a a detective, uh, so likely if I walked into a room where a crime had taken place and and I was not responsible for the crime, I, I would call the police. But the sorts of things that they collect could be anything from fiber evidence, blood evidence. Uh, they'd be looking for fingerprints, shoe prints. 
there are cases involving ear prints, palm prints. Uh, so it's really quite a, a range. Could be cartridge casings from a fired gun. It could be bullet fragments, uh, so the actual lead. Pretty much anything that might have what they call trace evidence, anything that would be a trace of the crime that took place. Now, one of your concerns is about how forensic science is misused and, and the area of junk science that ends up falling under forensic science. But before we go there, can you give me an example of a piece of evidence that is really your dream evidence because you know that the science in testing it and determining what happened is really solid? What would that be? Clearly, the number one dream evidence today and really the gold standard is DNA profiling. So DNA can be extracted, uh, cellular DNA can be extracted from virtually any bodily fluid. So you can get it off of uh, a stamp because somebody licked the stamp. Blood, obviously, is filled with cellular DNA. Now, the ideal would be to have it so that it's not a mixed sample. So DNA only becomes problematic when you might have two, three, or four other people. So if you have a baseball cap, for example, that was worn by three or four different people, the baseball cap is going to have the DNA of all of those people, and you get those mixed samples, and they're very difficult to do. But DNA is, is so precise that it's actually one of the tools that are being used to free people from jail who have been wrongly convicted. Yeah, no, DNA, well, the great thing, and this will come back later, I suppose, but the DNA uh, example is an example of how really good science serves law enforcement on both sides of the aisle. The fact of the matter is, if you have a really good forensic technology, it identifies the innocent people so they don't go to jail, and it identifies the guilty people so that they do go to jail. Uh, DNA, although it has led to the exoneration of around 260 people, the number of people that have been convicted on DNA is in the tens of thousands and have been incarcerated or taken off the streets because of that. Now, with all the advancement in tools that we, we have now, from brain scans to DNA and so forth, you've written a paper that's entitled Failed Forensics, how forensic science lost its way, and yet it gives us some hope because it goes on to say how it might find it. What is wrong with the field of forensic science? How has it lost its way? Well, I do want to be clear that when I say forensic science, the, I mean mainly the identification science is beyond DNA profiling. So DNA profiling and some aspects of chemistry like gas chromatography, for example, uh, when you're looking at blood alcohol content, uh, you might be looking at a gas chromatography machine will tell you what the blood alcohol content is by looking actually at the alcohol content in the blood. Mass spec uh, is actually very similar to gas chromatography. Mass spec is looking again at providing information about what is in, say, fibers or what is in uh, some material. When you look at the forensic science that has a home originally in scientific d disciplines like DNA did in microbiology and statistics, uh, that stuff tends to be very, very good. The forensic sciences that are really failing today, or at least are suspect, are the ones that grew up outside of mainstream academic science. So latent fingerprints, firearms identification, tool mark identification, hair identification, the arson investigation, these are all police sciences, and they were really never tested according to traditional scientific methods. In fact, they tend to be sort of 16th century, 17th century technologies. And it's sort of like if we kept on 
putting leeches on people or bleeding people when they had pneumonia, the technology associated with some of these forensic sciences really haven't changed over the last century. Well, let's look more closely at one of the examples of uh, one of the, the forms of evidence that you question. For example, fingerprints. I was under the impression that our fingerprints are, are unique, and if you leave your fingerprint, you can pretty much identify who it belongs to in the same way that you can identify whose DNA it is. Uh, well, I actually have no argument with the question of whether uh, latent fingerprints or whether fingerprints are unique. Uh, I, we can accept that uh, fingerprints are unique. We can also accept that every person is essentially not identical in the way they look, yet we make all sorts of mistakes with eyewitness identification, and we make all sorts of mistakes with uh, latent fingerprints. The problem is not that all the information is not unique in the fingerprint. The question is, when you have a fingerprint left at the scene of the crime, which very often is a partial print, what's called a latent print, whether that can be compared accurately to a known print, the suspect or, or the defendant in the case. When you look at a fingerprint and you are doing a point-by-point -point comparison, we have no idea what percentage of the population has that particular characteristic. The idea is that there are points on the finger, on those little circles. If you look at, if I look at my finger right now, it's all these concentric circles. It's what it looks like. Exactly. But the points are the different points on those circles that you're trying to match to the original. Well, they're they're the characteristics on the fingers that we're look at the fingerprint that we're looking at. So there may be ridge characteristics or pores or other things that they're looking at. They'll look at the latent print and they will try to identify points of uh, say two lines connecting, and then they'll look to see if they have those two lines connecting on the known print, the defendant's print. One of the problems with the methodology itself is it's very subjective. There are no preordained points for them to look at. They're really being driven by the forensic sample that's found at the scene of the crime. Now, now, some of these pieces of evidence have been, or techniques have been fully discredited, and I believe we're talking about prints now. Voice prints are one. What is a voice print and why is it not used anymore? Uh, the idea, and actually some people still believe in them to some extent, but the idea that everybody's voice is unique and that you can come up with a frequency for their voice, and that would match up from person to person uh, as a unique identifier. Uh, another example of that kind of thinking that uh, held sway for quite a while is uh, what's called bullet-lead comparisons. And bullet-lead comparisons, the FBI used to use this all the time. So if you found a bullet in a victim, and then when they found the suspect, and the suspect had a box of bullets in their trunk, the question was, did the bullet lead in the victim match the bullet lead in the box of bullets uh, found in the defendant's trunk? And the idea there is that if the bullets came from the same batch, they would all have the same composition. For years, they would uh, experts would testify that the bullet lead composition matched or didn't match. The National Academies of Science uh, did a report on bullet lead comparisons and found out that, in fact, the basis for it was completely unsupported, uh, and about six months after that report came out, the FBI stopped introducing expert testimony on bullet lead comparison. Now, the staple of crime drama, at least on television and so forth, is, is, is the lie detector, is the polygraph. Is the polygraph reliable? Is it, is it even used anymore? Was that discredited a long time ago? It's used all the time, and it's almost never allowed in court. Uh, so it's a wonderful interrogation device. Uh, I was actually on a committee for the National Academies on polygraphs. Or at least you say you were. Mm, at least I say I was. That's right. You'd have to hook me up to, to tell for sure. 
Um, but some people thought that uh, you could hook a suspect up to a Xerox machine and get about as good a result as hooking them up to a polygraph. The fact of the matter is polygraphs are terrific for getting people to confess. Our research indicated that uh, there was very little validity to the polygraph, and it's certainly not something that the courts have found worth relying on. So finally, what is to be done? Because you're trying to find precision in an area of some of these sciences, it sounds like what you've described so far, where it's it's imprecise and you're dealing with statistics and odds and, and so forth, which can be very confusing to people. What is the solution? Oh, I actually think the solution is go to go more toward the odds and go more toward the statistics. The, the biggest problem with forensic identification and maybe the biggest problem even with polygraphs is that there, there's not enough humility. Uh, when a firearms expert comes in or a latent fingerprint examiner comes in or a handwriting analyst comes in and they say, this is a match, this is the guy, this is the fingerprint, this is the gun that fired the fatal bullet, they don't really know that for sure. They, they try to individualize their science when, in fact, all they're really saying is this person's gun, fingerprint, handwriting is consistent and ha- shows distinct similarities, but there is and has to be some population. Uh, even in DNA, the statement that's offered is offered as there's a what's called a random match probability. If we went out and searched in the population, we would find one only one in six million that would, would match this or whatever the number might be. That's what we don't have in these other forensic sciences. We don't know how many other guns would have left exactly the same mark. We don't know how many other fingers would have left the same four or five points that, that they're concentrating on. And so if I were a judge in, in this area, I would say you can testify as a latent print examiner. You can testify as a firearms examiner, but you're not allowed to testify that this is the match. And what I'm really calling for here is that some of these other identification sciences should become more scientific. And right now, they're they're much more like tea leaf readers than they are physicists and chemists. They're basically testifying primarily on their experience, that they've been doing this for 20 or 25 years. The problem with experience in this area is that they don't really get any feedback. They don't know when they've gotten it right or they've gotten it wrong. You know, my favorite example, of course, is, you know, we used to uh, bleed people when they had sickness, like pneumonia, for hundreds of years. They did it. Well, they did it because some people got better. Of course, most people didn't get better, but because some people got better, they came to believe in that science. And I think that, to some extent, when you look at a lot of the forensic sciences, they are, they're really guilds that are very self-referential. So you have sort of the perfect storm of science that hasn't been validated that's being perpetuated in, in what is essentially an unreliable fashion. Thank you very much for talking to us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. David Fagman is a law professor at the University of California Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco. Well, Molly, it's interesting that these crime-solving techniques run the gamut from quite sophisticated and accurate, such as DNA... ...to the brain scans that we're just learning to interpret and improve on... ...and truly outdated and unscientific techniques, according to Dr. Fagman. And that's it for our show, which means... Hosts of Big Picture Science, your summary statements, please. We would like to thank our production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and volunteer Jay Weiler. Also, support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, 
and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. You can find Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio, well, check out the listings on our website of radio stations that carry the program. You've been listening to the episode, Who Done It? Who'll Do It? Case Dismissed.